In the second installment of our conversation on Noah, we now discover the ethical and moral teachings, the lessons this text is pointing us toward. Through careful analysis, Rabbi Ari and Pastor Danielle help us all not just know the lessons, but how they can be lived. God is 26, nipping it in the bad and becoming better followers. This week on A Rabbi and a Pastor Walked In. Welcome to A Rabbi and a Pastor Walked In. I'm Danielle Parrish. And I'm Ari Carton. I'm the rabbi. I'm the pastor. And she's Pastor Parrish. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to switch today. You'll no, stay, no, You'll no, stay no. the rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, we are continuing our story and discussion on the flood narrative with Noah. We're fresh off the boat. Are we fresh off the boat? We're fresh off the boat. (laughs) (laughs) We're beginning on chapter 8 of Genesis, verse 15, where they get off the boat, which let me just make a a comment that's really technical and arcane, which is that the Torah uh, text itself, when it's written, is divided into its own kind of paragraphs that have nothing to do with the chapter numbering. And this is the 26th paragraph that starts right here when they get off the boat. And 26 is a significant number. Um, There are significant numbers for many of these paragraphs up until you get to 32, which is the Tower of Babel, which we'll talk about in another week. But um, the 26 is actually the number for God. Hmm. And so, uh, and the reason is because it's spelled with four consonants, Y, H, W, H, and Y is a 10, and H is a 5, and two of those are 10, and and, and, and a W is a 6, adds up to 26. Uh, I had a professor, um, Jacob Petakowski, may he be remembered for good, uh, who used to say, use this for Brotherhood Week. And he said, if a Jew is talking to a Christian, the Jew should say, you think that God is three, but we know that God is 26. (laughs) (laughs) It was not a very good thing for Brotherhood Week, but it is a good joke. Um, yeah, so here we are in the beginning, really, of eight. The floodwaters, you know, have been over the earth for 150 days, but God remembers. Well, it's actually a whole solar year. Yeah, really. Whole long solar time. year. It rained and, and flooded and rushed around for 150 days. But yeah, this is a whole solar year, which in and of itself is a question why is it a solar year when the Torah tradition that becomes Judaism is based on lunar years that are adjusted to solar years. Right. But that's another thing about our talking about this is the story of the world before there were Abraham's family. So this is back in the time when this is a solar culture. A solar culture. And at, at this point then we see that it says like God remembers Noah. And I think, you know, when we read that in English, it sounds like God's like, oh, wait, darn, I had that guy and all those people on that boat. I'll have to go pay attention to that, right? Yep. And he sort of all of a sudden smacks his head and says, I should have had a V8 to date myself to the 70s commercials. Yep. <laughs> but um, instead, that word remember in Hebrew more has a connotation of like to think upon and act. It's not, um, it's not devoid of action, right? It's not just a point of going, oh, I'm going to, oh, yeah, that one time. I, I remembered what I needed at the grocery store, but instead there's an action involved here. And at the same sort of concept will come up when Israel is enslaved in Egypt and God looks down and God remembers. Yeah. I know. that It's kind of like what we talked about that it says that uh, in the beginning created God. Did the beginning of the world create God? That is, there wasn't an mm-hmm. ability to be aware of God until there was a world to remember. Do we, when we say God remembers, does that mean that we finally experienced God? Nice. And that's yeah. our noticing. So God being, remembering us is we noticing God's actions. Right. Or sometimes they're somewhat still arcane and hidden. Mm-hmm. And so then we have this picture of the wind over the earth and the waters receding, which is, again, harkening right back to Genesis. So now they're off the boat, and one of the questions is, you know, how long did it take to grow things? And when the dove comes back with a leaf, an olive leaf, did the trees remain verdant, as they say? You know, they, was the world still there, and they were able to eat the fruits that were now revealed again? And that's, a, that's another one of those questions that's unanswerable because there's not enough data. But um, there they are. I mean, if they... They didn't have to just take a year's worth of food for them and the animals. They would have had to take two years' worth of food, mm-hmm. one year for the flood, and one year until all the food was ready again growing. And when the uh, in Leviticus 25, when the Torah commands a year of lying fallow, sabbatical year, mm-hmm. it says 
well, you'll say, what are you eating that year? And the uh, answer, actually, in the text of Leviticus, it's a great question. Um, God will command an, um, an enormous bounty in the last year that you can plant. So it'll last you the year that you planted, the year that it's fallow, and the year that it takes to grow the new stuff. Well, it's like the manna, right? It's like, yeah. Right, manna, right? That you get a, a double portion the day before you're resting. That's right, because you can't, you're not supposed to collect it then. So yes, you, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah. Just in case you don't know this, if you go to a Jewish household, you'll find uh, that celebrating Shabbat, Shabbat, they'll have two challahs on a, on, a, on a Shabbat. And the reason is to remember the double portion of manna that fell on the eve of Shabbat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've also heard to remember the, ten tab, the two tablets. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there were two leavened loaves that were waved in the temple and on Pentecost, on mm-hmm. Shavuot, uh, to, rem- to show everybody that the period of Passover was 50 days later, was now totally over. So you'd say, mm-hmm. see this? This is leaven. It's kosher again. <laughs> <laughs> you can have it now. You can have it now. Yeah. So after the, then those 40 days, Noah opens the window he's made in the ark, and he sends out a raven. It keeps flying back and forth, and there's no place for it to land. And then a dove. And then a dove. And the dove returns with something important, a freshly olive plucked leaf. olive leaf. Olive right? leaf. So that becomes part of our symbol for peace and restoration and hope. And the olive tree also serving as evergreen and um, light and oil and all of those beautiful pictures. And That's right. Olives were not really food mm-hmm. back then. They were oil, which were light. And so... It's significant that he takes off the cover, which is letting the light in, and then they bring back the symbol of the light being able to be produced in the darkness again. That's nice. That's really pretty. But it, it, it doesn't really symbolize peace unless you say it symbolizes the end of the flood. But Right, some sort of like the end of the chaos, right? The end of the chaos. And a picture again of that hearkening back to Genesis where God hovers over the surface of the waters and now we have this bird hovering over the surface. And as I've mentioned before, for Christians, this will pull into the baptism story and the dove for Christians is often used as a symbol for the Holy Spirit um, descending upon Jesus at the baptism. And then God begins to give them some things to think about (laughs) and the way they should be uh, acting. And the first question that I have, God's commands some sacrifices. And in the beginning, when they got on the boat, there were two of every kind of animal that came to them. Should have left the skeeters off. But in any case, they, <laughs> <laughs> they, two came to them to save the species, but there were seven of every pure kind. Right. It says clean, but clean is a bad word. Not that they washed them. It's that they were considered to right. be edible. Because mm-hmm. they were they were fit to eat. The word "fit" means is, is kosher in Hebrew. And um, <laughs> I heard about a sign in Florida that somebody was selling kosher oysters, <laughs> meaning clean oysters. Which, of course, those of who who are aware, it's not the word "clean." It's that would be specific, really bizarre. Right? There's no no way an oyster can be kosher for a Jew. <laughs> no, not at all. And <laughs> anyway, so they had to take seven of the animals you could eat because only those you could sacrifice. Right. And also, you'll find out in a second that they can eat them. And so uh, they offer the sacrifice, which is a weird thing. If the world had descended into violence and killing, why would then sacrifices of animals and the permitting for the very first time, at least overtly, mm-hmm. from God personally, that you can eat animals, why is that there? That's just so bizarre. In chapter 9, verse 5, it says you can eat the animals. And we can't answer that. It was obvious to people back then that you sacrificed life, animal life, and you offered also bread offerings with it and oil, um, so that's the plant kingdom. But you would do this to symbolize something, maybe that you deserve to die for all your sins or whatever, and this would either feed God or at least give tribute to God. It depends on the religion you were talking about, because Noah was not Jewish, nor was Noah Christian. Right, right. Though... Considering the fact that they use the language of Leviticus to describe animals that are edible, gives rise to rabbis saying, see, the Torah was preexistent. Adam taught it to Noah, and Noah taught it to Shem, and Shem taught it to Abraham. Wow. That's the tradition. As a matter of fact, Shem and Ever, Shem's grandson, are considered, uh, or Eber, depending how you pronounce it, which becomes the word Hebrew later, um, they supposedly had an academy in Jerusalem 
<laughs> and they were alive until Jacob was 15. Wow. So, yeah. So, and Jacob, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all learned Torah from Shem and Ever personally. It doesn't say that in the text, but if you look at all the stuff and put it all together, you can find you it. Could, you could get there. You can get there. But it's, what's, one of the things is you, even though we're allowed to eat meat, we're not allowed to eat the blood. I think one of the pictures that I see here is, you know, there's been all this chaos in the world. God's starting over, um, wiping the slate clean, quite literally, literally. right? Yeah. And then Noah's first act upon getting out of this teva, this redeeming vessel, is to worship. And that's a pretty crazy thing. But the question is then, was he doing that before he got on the boat? I don't know. I but mean, it doesn't make any sense for him to have invest, invented it if God didn't tell him to do it. So it must Except have been something that cultural. If I were Noah, I'd be thinking, wow, this is pretty bad, right? I've been stuck on this boat for a really long time. I want to make this God really happy <laughs> when I go. But off. why would that make God happy? I don't know. If he I haven't to have been told economy, by right? God that sure, God wants right. this, how do I know that killing God's creatures right. is going to make God happy? Well, he happy? builds an altar, too. Where does that come from, right? right so he's that, building an altar and he's going to sacrifice the clean animals, the clean birds, uh, you know clean or pure, right? And um, burnt offerings on it. And then the Lord smells the pleasing aroma and says in his heart, okay, never again will I curse the ground because of man, because of humans, yeah. And, and you also have Cain and Abel offering something to God, but it doesn't mention how they did. Right. Cain offered plants right. that he had raised, and Abel offered the firstlings of his animal flock. And we don't know what it means to offer them. I mean, there are mm -hmm. two ways to do that. One... Mm -hmm that we find out later is that people were dedicating their children as priests to Moloch and stuff like that. And the same thing would apply to, in medieval Europe, Christianity, the first son inherited everything. The second right. one went to the army and the third became a priest. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, and those are ways of you know, offering things to God. But I don't, I, the whole concept of sacrifice is it's troubling to me as a liberal Jew who didn't grow up with it, nor wanting it to return. I don't want to build a monument to barbecue Judaism in Jerusalem. I don't need another sacrificial temple. Thank you very much. Right, right. And, um, and for Christians, right, there's this passage in Hebrews 10.9, um, we have been made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We don't need any more offerings. We don't need the high priest to do anything else for us. We don't need anything to think Jesus himself is now our high priest. And so all of those things have disappeared. But that wasn't an understanding historically that Christians had immediately after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because we have in the book of Acts the disciples all back at the temple regularly there praying and worshiping and Paul coming back as well and making an offering. Um, so I think that's something that as Later on, of course, for both Christians and Jews, but those early followers of Jesus, um, after the temple's destroyed in 70 CE, everyone's having to really understand how their faith works apart from a building and apart from a sacrificial system. So um, all of that is part of our wrestling and where we are today. No one's looking to go back to, <laughs> no. to a, a temple where we're... But we might... Many well, of us there might, are our, our, our traditional wings, our daily praying for right. a restoration of the temple and the sacrifices. Right. Right. And if you ask the liberal traditionals, it sounds kind of oxymoronic, but it's not, uh, like conservative Jews instead sure. of Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox, they, they don't want a temple any more than I do. Right. But it's in the prayer book, so they do it. And we have taken all that reference to sacrifices out. We don't want to go back to that. Right. We're happy to have a prayer site where we offer words instead, and we quote Hosea that said, offer what the words of our lips instead of bulls right but right. um we that's well, fine and um and pa the apostle paul talks about um us being as living sacrifices like right. our our life is lived in such a way that we place ourselves um and our desires and, and even the teachings of jesus are very clear on this like lay down your life for one another he who loves his friend is the one that lays down his life for one another that it's not um you deny yourself, you pick up your cross, you follow him, that this isn't all about us, but our life is lived through that um, sacrifice of obedience, right? And not my will, but your will be done. Jesus prays in the garden and um, right before arrested. And so that's part of that, that Christian experience too. So moving from sacrifices to actually eating the barbecue, um, when you can eat, why would the meat be permitted? But in any case, it says you can eat the basar banasho damo, the meat with its soul, which is its blood. Hmm. And so there are two aspects of 
kosher meat uh, besides the kinds of animals. You have to kill them correctly. And one is they have to be killed in a way that kills them quickly, humanely. I'm not going to get into the technical aspects of that. Right. But the other way is to kill them in a way so that most of the blood comes out. Because we're not allowed to eat the blood. Now, we're not allowed to eat the blood on purpose. That is, a, you know, have a mm-hmm. glass of blood or blood pudding or anything like that, which is just not permitted. And you're not allowed to eat it. You try to get as much out as possible, as humanly possible, even though it's not possible to get every single drop out of it. But the way we kill them is to hang them upside down in such a way. You kill them so the heart is still beating while they die, and, and they're upside down so that it drains out. So that's one of the essences of kosher slaughtering, to make sure that there's as little blood as possible. And it's also salted to draw more blood out, which is why kosher meat is much more salty than mm-hmm. uh, non-kosher meat. Yeah. And I, um, I've always deeply appreciated the um, care that's taken for the animal, because I feel like that also doesn't just preserve, um, you know, it preserves the humanity of the person doing, of the butcher as well. Right to to be able to do that in such a way that's ethical and that cares for the animal and we've we've gotten so far away from that within our crazy mass produced mechanized world, um, but so much of that changes the humanity of the human being caring for the animals um, when you can just watch suffering of an of another life and not have any concern for it. So I think all of that is important here, and and to that end, I think you know when the Lord smells this pleasing aroma in verse twenty one, He says. Okay, never again I will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of their heart is evil from childhood. So even though we'll still have this evil inclination, uh, it's not like all of a sudden Noah and his family were the ones that could now produce a line that will never have an evil inclination or be, or be more likely to have inclination towards good. God's going to decide that even though the inclination is still to do evil often, um, He's not say often. It's all doggone all the time. time, right? Um, exactly. Um, <laughs> Which is not true. And never again. No, it's not. And never again will I destroy all living so creatures. So, what is not true? Why is it there? That one. That's one of those things that drives me crazy. Yeah. Even though there is an there is a bad inclination in a, in the human heart, that's what I would have said. And the rabbis focus on the fact that we were created with two inclinations. There could be an, if there's an evil one, there's also a good one, right? right. We have a superego and an id. Mm-hmm. And the way that uh, liberals look at it is that the inclination to do the not good, I don't like to use the word evil because evil is just metaphysically bad, but uh, is derived but from our... But it is our, the word evil in the Hebrew, right? No. No? Ra. It's loto? Just well, ra. Right. That's just bad. Bad, right. No, there is no special word for evil. Right. Now, there's rasha, which means a professional bad person. That is someone who does <laughs> right. it all the time. Right. But that is, the word evil is only in English. Mm-hmm. But it does mean bad. It doesn't mean... By the way, it's three syllables when uh, uh, Charlton Heston says it. Evil. <laughs> right. So you have to get a third syllable <laughs> the Ten Commandments, yeah. But, but translate, it's not just not good, right? It's, it's bad. It's just bad. Right. But it's just bad. Mm-hmm. Evil is a metaphysical sure. word. Right, right. Sin is a metaphysical mm-hmm. word because the word is mistake. In Hebrew, right. it's a mistake. Right. Well, there are three words. There's, there's chet, which is a mistake. Then there's pesha, which is rebellion, mm. you know, a rebellious child kind of thing. And then there's avon. Avon comes the word from twist. You've been bad so long, you don't know what is mm. good. We have a funny story about that. This goes quick. <laughs> First time you do something bad, you feel horrible about having done it. Hmm. Second time you do that, you say, well, I guess it wasn't so bad. And the third time you turn it into a mitzvah. You got to wow. do it. So it's a matter of nipping it in the bad right. before it becomes impossible to get out of when you, before you're addicted to bad. Right. But hmm. uh, in any That's case, it's, it's, uh, this is one of those verses that drives me crazy. There, there are several verses in the Bible. <laughs> Let's say 422 and a half. That drive me crazy. Just a couple. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a good thing. But, but this is where the laws come in. And so uh, we both have traditions in, in, in our Bible and in the New Testament, uh, Acts 15, um, of the laws of the Noah 
descendants, otherwise called in fancy Greco-English Noachides. Right. Um, and, uh, and so they are, this is the official Jewish version of them, um, the establishment of courts of justice. How do you get that? It says, Shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam damo yishafech. That's one of my favorite mm. lines. Cause it's so it's nice. It's whoever sheds the blood of a person by a person, that blood will be shed. So, yeah, in order to do that, you have to have a court to do it and not just go out there and walk them on head. Right. So that's verse six, because in the yeah. image of God, God has made human. Right. right. And then the prohibition of blasphemy. How do you get that out of it? Because they're dealing with God. So obviously, if they're talking to God back and forth and not talking to God is blasphemy or talking about God badly. <laughs> prohibition of idolatry. Same thing. Uh, incest. How do you get that out of anything? And the answer is they had to be good on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> Bloodshed, we just talked about it. Robbery, that's because a traditional word, Hamas, which is translated as violence in English, is understood traditional Jewishly as robbery. That is, the people were robbing each other and beating each other up mm. personally. And then of eating flesh coming from a living animal. You're not allowed to have ever menachai. And I remember when I first saw about certain ways of producing sushi, which actually cuts pieces off the fish, and then oh. they throw the fish in to swim around some more. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to eat, you know, chomp right. on an animal right. while it's alive. You have to slaughter it humanely, and then you can eat right. it. But you can't torture it while you eat it. Which we do have um, from the ancient Near East um, inscriptions and descriptions of people who would like sort of tie up an animal and um, and just take off a leg. Ugh. Right. So Ugh. so this is a practice, right? Yeah, it's horrible and and terrible for us to think of, but it's also helpful to know that our common text here is like, that's horrible. Don't do that. And that's yeah. that's not in the text anywhere. And we can say you're not allowed to eat the meat with its blood. We already know that. Right. Um, but um, saying that you can't eat it while it's alive, that that's kind of an extemporaneous going on from it. And uh, they figured, well, as long as we're doing all these other good things, let's, let's forbid this one, too. <laughs> well, it, you said something really quick but interesting to me. You said blasphemy is? Blasphemy is saying something, because they're in conversation with God during this whole story, right. to deny God or to say something bad about God, okay. those are the two things about blasphemy. So what does it mean to deny God? What would be an example of that? Well, the classic ex- statement of this in Jewish uh, thought is to say, there's no judge, there's no justice. Hmm. That is, this world is a bad world from the get-go, through and through, and if there were a God in charge of it, it wouldn't be so bad. And so that would be, I would say, when um, modern, and when I say modern, I mean philosophically oriented people for the last 2,000 years, who look at the Bible and they look at religion and they say, I see people who believe in God doing some of the most disgusting things. I see a world that you say you're supposed to love God, but God created bad. God created all these bad things. God created death. God created a world in which people had the option to be cruel. And if that were a loving God, it wouldn't exist. I don't believe that a loving God could create a world as bad as this. There must not be a judge and there must not be justice. And that's denying God. Interesting. Wow. So that's blasphemy. That's one way to do it. And then the other way would be to speak badly about God. You know, to speak badly about God, like you son of a gun. And, and But, you know, you have Abraham. We, we come from a tradition of... I hope there's not a lot of pastors and rabbis doing some bad blasphemy. Well, you never know, but... Shabbat but <laughs> Uh, when Abraham hears God say, I'm going to wonk out these sodomites because they're so bad. I'm, just, I'm sending people down just to check it out. And Abraham says, you're the judge of the whole universe. Aren't you going to be just? Now, is that blasphemy? Right. And the answer is no. And then when God tells Moses, you know, these, these Israelites, they don't want to go conquer the land. I won't do anything I say. I'm going to kill them all and I'm going to start with you. And Moses says, what are the neighbors going to think? They think you're not a god. Would you bring them out of Egypt just to kill them in the desert? What, what is kind of a god is that? And so, now I, I say this in my kind of Jewish accent, right. you know, because <laughs> I grew up in a tradition where you criticize God for the things that God doesn't do because God expects it of us. He expects a conversation. And a God back. wants us to be intolerant right. of the evil. Right. And nice. so there are two ways to do it. One is to be intolerant of the evil and to kind of say, God, we're going to do this despite you. We're going to try to make a better world. And God goes, boy, that finally got it across. Or you can say, no, there's no judge and there's no justice. And that's another way to do it all together. Right. So um, 
in the book of Matthew, we have this teaching that Christians like to freak out and debate on quite a bit. Um, it's in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 30. And Jesus says, okay, he who's not with me is against me. He do, who doesn't gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Which spirit is that? Well, yeah. So then it continues, <laughs> right? Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And I think, you know, in the book of Matthew in particular, Jesus is um, constantly using euphemisms to avoid saying the name of God. And so he doesn't say kingdom of God. He'll say the kingdom of heaven, um, whereas other gospels might use the phrase kingdom of God, but Matthew won't. Um, and so... Really? Yeah. That's I mean, cool. Which is, you know, it's a very Jewish thing right? to do. So it's keeping we, Instead that, of saying God, we, instead of saying bless God, we say bless, bless the, the name. name. Right. And, and that's also recorded, that custom's recorded in our Gospels, too, in the, in the New Testament. But that idea then, if so, if Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, right, in Hebrew is this additional euphemism for, for God or for the movement of God in this world. According to the discussion of blasphemy, that's why I was asking you, it's very interesting, because here we have, like, anyone who speaks against the Ruach HaKodesh will not be forgiven in the age or in the age to come. So if the definition of blasphemy is either denial of God or speaking bad about about God, this is something that would have a parallel. There's a parallel teaching, at least, um, or something that might inform some of the understanding within first, second century context. And, and I, so the question is, you know, the, a lot of people look at the way Jews refer to God in our arguments with God, in the tradition of Abraham and Moses, and wonder, why do we do this? Right. You're speaking against God. And, and we're going... No, God created the world. This kind of a world, would you make this kind of a world? I wouldn't make this kind of a world. I'd make it a little better. I mean, you know, that, that kind right. of stuff is really obnoxious to people who are really pious on that kind of a level. Right. And right. we don't try to be obnoxious. We're just trying to learn from our ancestors. And we believe, as a matter of fact, we have a lot of stories. Right. There were these two rabbis arguing on who was right. One was in charge of the academy, and the other one was, had been kicked out of it pretty much for his, his views. But he was right. And, and, and God told him personally that he was right. And so he comes in and says, if I'm right, you know, God, God make the stream go uphill. And God makes the stream go uphill. And the head of the academy says, we don't learn from streams. And then he says, <laughs> okay, God, if I'm right, take this almond seed and turn it into a tree and give fruit. There's a tree giving fruit in the middle of the, of the synagogue. The guy says, eh, we don't learn from trees. And then he says, okay, God, if I'm right, make the walls of this academy fall in. And they start coming in. And at this point, the head of the academy says, God, you got to stop it. And the walls stop. He says, God, you know, you gave us a Torah. It's on earth now. We decide things here by majority rule. <laughs> <laughs> and so God, God made the walls stop, but didn't bring it back up because, you know, Eliezer had been right. But... Uh, <laughs> And then, and then the, the, the story goes on that uh, God is seen in heaven by one of the rabbis who happened to be going up there for a good bagel. Anyway, so, and he says, what did God do? And he says, God says, oh, my children have finally won. Huh. So we have, That's funny. <laughs> we have this tradition right, right. of arguing with God. Right. And give, God gave us. And with one us, another. And with each other. And with anything else that will walk in our path. And then we, you know, we. We try to be nice about I love it. Oh, it. So I, so the other thing is, is sometimes it really sounds obnoxious. So you know Ellen, who is the sure. executive director of our congregation, of yeah. and Ellen has been my good friend for forty years. And, uh, <laughs> and so when she, when I was before I retired, we would you know we would have our meetings over the table uh, outside of her office, and we would talk. And I would say something, and she'd say, no, that's not good. And we'd go back and forth like that. And people would come by and go, why do you hate each other? And we don't. We don't hate each other. It's just the way we talk. <laughs> we, we know we love each other. It's just that <laughs> right. you know, we just, we're honest and we're, we're right. you know, straightforward. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that's such a good thing for Christians reading our New Testament to remember because we'll often say, wow, these Pharisees, these religious leaders really didn't like Jesus. They're speaking so harshly to one another. And you kind of think, oh, they're Jewish. They're having a rabbinic conversation. <laughs> That's the way it sounds. This is, I mean, but to our ears today, it can sound different. But in that time, now that I'm more familiar with the rabbinic context and culture of the Second Temple period, and also now that I've spent a lot more time in in modern Jewish context, and I recognize that those are not exactly the same thing, but there's a tradition of having these conversations and pushing. I had to spend quite a bit of time 
sort of bracing myself and not responding with, wow, I think that that somebody's really mad at me. And they're going, oh, they're not mad at me. <laughs> they're just, they actually respect me and they want to have a conversation. Right? And that's how we talk. Right. Uh, it just took me some time to understand. There were two things that when I got into rabbinical school made me sure that I was in the right place. The first was when I found out that almost all of in rabbinic interpretation is based on linguistic puns. Mm. And since I'm an inveterate punster, uh, I said, oh, okay, I belong here. But the th- second thing was really important. Uh, my first year learning rabbinical commentary. So we learned about Rashi, who was the major commentator from France in the 11th century. And he would write all these things. And everybody refers to Rashi because he was the first and he's right. the most complete. did it on the entire Bible and Talmud. And then we started reading Ibn Ezra, who lived a couple of years later, a century later in Spain. And he would start his commentary frequently saying, the rabbi is wrong. He's talking about Rashi. What? The rabbi is wrong? He's wrong? We just learned Rashi. Everybody refers to Rashi. What? <laughs> Ibn Ezra says, is wrong? He's wrong. And then Ramban <laughs> picks up on Ibn Ezra and says, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> right. And so I go, oh, my God, there's a place for me because here are these Orthodox Great people, all you know, Jewish, all Jewish all major faithful. commentators. Everybody respects them and loves right. them, and they argue with each other like that. I said, okay, if they're all wrong, I can be here because I'm going to be wrong too. <laughs> and, and the beauty of that is that the culture doesn't break for it. No. Because I think so frequently within at least modern Christianity, American Christianity, there's this experience where, you know, I'm going to disagree, and so we now have to start a new church, right? <laughs> right? Like, like there's this, rather than saying, okay, well, I think this, and you think this, but we can still both be Christian, and we're not going to vote one another off the island. And that, this would be part one of my points of holy envy, uh, looking into the practice of Judaism, is to say, wow, I, I want more of that um, courage to argue with God, argue with the text, and argue with one another, but still walk away, still one. Still Be careful friends. what you ask for. Sometimes no. it's difficult. You know, it isn't easy. No, yeah. one of the things that I learned when I was in college and sociology was learning about personal distance. Mm. There are cultures where people stand nose to nose and talk. Right. And there are people who stand about a foot or a yard away from each other and talk. Right. And they're not comfortable. Right. You, you know, either way, either you're too far away from me, I can't see you, or you're too close to me, get away. And the same kind of thing. Are you comfortable with this kind of banter back and forth where, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult. But I do hope that the Christian listeners will understand that uh, it, this is the way we talk. It's, it's well-meaning. It's, it's well not meaning. with malice. Right. And if you pointed yeah. out that it's, it's bothering you, then we always switch <laughs> right. until we fall back into it. <laughs> right. right, right. And I, yes, I think that that's very true. And um And I think one of the things to remember about it as well is that there are things to learn from it that you can't learn any other way. So if you're a person who's concerned about making mistakes um, and doing things wrong, then it's going to be difficult to go into any other culture or any other context or any other family or religion and survive, right? Instead, I I remember in one of my um, dear relationships with an observant Jew was within just a few hours of hanging out with one another. And this person said to me, okay, so you did something wrong. And I wanted to just like, you know, crash in on myself. I felt terrible. I didn't want to do anything wrong. But instead, you know, you ask for that courage of that moment to say, okay, I did something wrong. Can you teach me how to do it the right way? I, I want to learn again. And this is back to our Gentile and Jewish conversation found all the way from Noah um, with all of these be fruitful, multiply, and echoing this new recreation into then Acts chapter 15, <laughs> where the new followers of Jesus have gone out um, into the Greco-Roman world, and there have been Jewish followers, but now there's this weird thing happening, and there's all these Gentile followers of Jesus too. What do they have to do to, to follow? Do they also have to get circumcised? Do they also have to keep kosher? Do they also have to keep Shabbat? Do they have to convert to Judaism um, in order to be a follower of Jesus? And Acts chapter 15 says no. Read what they got to do. So instead, what they're going to have to do, according to Acts chapter 15, and this is with... Um, Jesus's brother, um, who we call James, but whose name was Jacob. <laughs> Otherwise known as Yago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or Yaakov. Yeah. yeah. Um, they work out this thing. It's okay. It's, it's our judgment that we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I think the subtext there is they don't have to be circumcised. <laughs> um, instead, we'll write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is 
read back to Noah and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And so that's the decision. The decision is that they need to keep this Noahide commandment that we're going to find all the way back here in Genesis. And it's interesting that it's expressed that way. And, and the whole concept, Jews are also not allowed. Even if you had kosher food made in a perfectly kosher way, but somebody had bought kosher meat at Molly Stones or whatever, some market, and they took it and offered it to an idol and asked you if you want to come eat too. You couldn't eat it. Right. It becomes unedible. Right. Not fit for right. a Jew, at least, to eat. And, uh, and, and so... Uh, that makes a big difference. So that we share that particular thing. That is, once it has been dedicated to a different God, sure, then it's no longer permitted to eat for you or for me. Right. Now, I don't know how often that applies to Christians who are, are they really aware of that? But um, there's not a whole lot of times when you're around people who have actually sacrificed something to a different God. And... Um, and if Muslims, for example, were to take kosher food, literally kosher food, and on their feasts they actually have sacrifices, some mm -hmm. of them. Um, that's what they call it, halal. That is, a, you know, and, and they have kodesh, they have holy, and they have halal, which is uh, for day-to-day -day use. And if they were to offer it up, could you eat it with them? And the answer is, yeah, because they're only talking about God. Mm -hmm. Jesus, I mean, uh, Muhammad right. is not... Worshipped as a god. He's not, not a god. Not god right. right. Um, and, but it's a different kind of thing right. with a Christian. Mm -hmm. That is, if you talk about Jesus being God, right. but even then, you have to think about it because it's still the same God. Right. And um, so we're, it, it, it makes it a little more... It's to think about it. It's more right. complicated yep. by calling a person a god. Um, but in any case, we can we can do that later. We should probably <laughs> yeah. do that later. But well, the the end of our story here as they're starting to get off the boat, right? Oh, I want to say one more thing about kosher slaughter. Yes, please. Um, the uh, one of the common misconceptions about kosher is that it's been blessed by a rabbi. Mm. That's not true. What's the, there is a blessing said by the slaughterer, who may or may not be a rabbi, and the blessing is praising God for authorizing the act of humane kosher slaughter. So there is a blessing. Right. But we're not blessing the food. No. And we're not, you know, mm -hmm. so we're, we're, we're giving thanks for, like we right. do in any time when we do a ritual act that's been ordained. And um, so anyway, and we also use the word bless differently. Because right. bless to us means to praise in a way and not to just say nice things. And the, the New Testament uses it mo in the Jewish context, in that you know Second Temple rabbinic Judaism context. It's like, think as Christians, as these Gentiles came and started reading a text that's mm -hmm. far removed from their own culture, then they said, oh, I have to... You know, there's a, there's a time when Jesus in the Gospels takes the bread and blesses, and um, then it's been presumed that he's blessing the bread, but he's blessing God blessing for the God. bread, and it's a very traditional blessing. So the other day, um, my daughter and I were in our garden, and we have some grapes that have just come in on the vine, and we just barely ripe enough. And so we took one off to try the sweetness, but I told her before she, she took it, I said, you know, there's, there's, we have to pray. We have to thank God for the first fruits. We have to thank God for giving us this fruit of the vine and she just immediately i didn't have to give her you know a structured prayer i just said we should thank god for the ship closed folded her eyes said thank you god for first fruits thank you god for grapes amen and then popped one in her mouth I'm like great let's just that's exactly the blessing start with just remembering that these good gifts come from god that's and that right. we can remember we didn't do anything to get this thing and we tended the vine we cared for it but ultimately all of this belongs to god and speaking of a vine so this is an undivine action. An undivine action. We have this very weird scene at the end. After God has hung God's bow in the sky, and every time God will look on it, God will remember to never again use that weapon against the earth. And then um, in chapter 9, verse 20, quick thing, and as we, as we were talking about this today, I'll let, I'll let you make a comment. <laughs> it says, Noah planted a vineyard and made wine and drank, got drunk. Right, it's all very quick in one <laughs> sentence. It happens very fast. But of course, if you're going to plant a vineyard, 
and then you have to grow the vine, and then you have to make the wine. This is a several years process. Which is where the grandchildren come so in. So that's why we have a grandchild also involved. So in we shouldn't story. read it as sort of, you know, and, and I was just noting that this is a good argument for when somebody wants to go to the text of Genesis and say, we're going to read it as a science book, and we're going to read the creation narrative as telling us exactly how the world was created. You're like, well, okay, a lot is missed in this one sentence of how this literature is working of go plant vineyard you know make the vine grow get those grapes working and then ferment the grapes and then all of that oh and also by the way there's a whole grandchild in the same process right? i know it's like uh, uh oh god created the world oh, how could god do that well how's your math <laughs> <laughs> right. right so unfortunately though now um we have our first occurrence in at least written in our text of drunkenness yep and so uh I heard somebody years ago tell me that, you know, wine is like fire. It can heat your house. It can help you cook your meals. Or if it comes out of the fireplace, if it comes out of its special spot, it can burn your house down. And so here's Noah letting the wine burn his house down. He gets a little bit and then he's drunk. And that's why the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, prohibits drunkenness because the next time somebody will get drunk, it'll be Lot with his daughters and that won't be a good thing either. So basically in the Bible, drunk means naked and afraid and ashamed. So you don't have, you don't want to get drunk naked and ashamed. What about two out of three? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. none of those. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> so there, but, but drinking wine is not prohibited. And here we have, you know, Unfortunately, Noah lying there naked, drunk, and one of his sons sees him. And, and that's not a problem. So if your mom or your dad or somebody naked and you see them, you clothe them. Right. Right? And there's no crime in that. Right. Seeing a naked body is not a crime. Absolutely. Especially when you come across it. If you make it naked, that's a whole other phenomenon. <laughs> right. So the rabbis assumed that he must have actually had sex with his father. Something something bad has happened. And nothing's given here, but because of the brevity of the text, then people are reading in details. Something terrible must have happened because it can't just be that he covered his father's nakedness. Maybe it's He didn't that, cover it. He just looked at it. Right, he looked at it, didn't cover it, and yuck, then yuck, yuck. like spreads the spreads the gossip. Guess what? Dad's all naked over there. He's drunk and naked. Let's go look. Let's go look. Right. No. And so Shem and, and uh, Yefet come in, and they walk in backwards. So as to not, to not avoid, to right, and, and to cover over their father's disgrace and to maintain his dignity, right? Now, have you ever tried to put something on somebody from back behind you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to, okay, good morning, kid. I'm going to get you dressed. Stand behind me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't walk know in backward, cover their father's I'm nakedness. I'm not saying it's right? impossible, but I'm just saying yeah. that the visuals are crazy. Right. Um, and their faces are turned the other way so they don't see it, right? He awakes, he finds out what his youngest son's done to him, whatever, again, that might be, and says this curse. It says, doesn't say youngest, actually. It says little. Hakaton. Right. His little son. His little son. Now, yeah. little can mean youngest. So we use katan and, and, uh, and uh, zakain, old and, and little. Mm -hmm. So uh, as, as you know, older and younger, right. the senior and junior. Right. But uh, we don't know. So he's Shem, Ham, and Yepheth. Is the order where they're given. So it's uh, in English. Shem. Shem is Shem. Ham we is, say Shem, Ham, and Japheth, yeah. I think. Yeah. So Shem is renown. It means name and fame. Uh, Ham is heat. Uh, and could be lust, fire, whatever. And right. then Yepheth is beauty. Mm -hmm. So uh, fame, heat, and beauty. And fame and beauty come in. <laughs> and they cover him up. Because mm -hmm. heat was doing something bad. Right, right. And so Noah curses Heat's son, lowly. Yeah. Kana'an, Canaan. Right. Kana'an means lowly. Yeah. The, the Canaan, Kana'an was called so because it had low hills. Low hills, right. And it also, to Kana' somebody is to subjugate them, to bend them over mm -hmm. and put them on the ground up. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and so... Um, that's his name. So he be, his name is Lowly. Now, I don't know why you'd name your kid Lowly. Right. But. Well, yeah. Or Hom. Or Heat. <laughs> right. And, you know, it's funny. When I was living in Jerusalem, I had some friends, Israeli friends, and they were all taking me out and showing me around. And um, we were going to go out dancing. And they said, now, don't say Anihama 
Like, don't say, don't I'm, say I'm hot. I'm hot because it means I'm horny. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Instead, you have to say hamshali. It is warm to me. It's humbly, hot to humbly. 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 Right. Yeah. Well, that's a humbly carly. Either way, I'm <laughs> right. I, it's and I see it's more more uh, uh, accurate because my wife will say I'm hot. Uh, she's hot or she's cold. Most right. she's cold most of the time. And I'm hot, and so it's not that it's hot and it's cold. It's that it's, it's cold, cold to, to me it's and it's hot, hot to right. me. Right. Right. right, exactly. They finally got into that with cars now. They have dual temperature controls. Right, right. So that that connotation of that word, right? You don't want to walk into the yeah. Let's say, so I we were hum. talking, and yeah. so why would he curse Ham's son? Yeah, it's a weird story. We have an answer. What is it? If, God forbid, you assume, this is my other, this is my Talmud <laughs> voice, uh, that Ham had been having some kind of sexual act with his father, his father cursed Ham's sexual act. Oh, interesting. Huh. It's midah and negative midah, measure for measure. Measure for measure, yep. Now, the sins I wouldn't of the curse fathers anybody. falling upon the children. That's right. Hmm. Well, not so much the sins of the fathers falling upon the children. The sin of the father was based on the on the genital. Right. So Noah cursed the genital. Possibly. Possibly. That's the <laughs> I mean that's the way we uh right. we look at One it. One interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Um and then blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, may Canaan be the slave of Shem. And this is a weird thing and it's been used this verse has been used to justify slavery particularly during the um, slavery and transatlantic slave movement here in the United States. And it's obviously cannot be used to justify that, in addition to the fact that um, Canaan is always not a um, person of color. This is not an African descendant. The Canaan is up in the land bridge area anyway. So not that it should ever be used to enslave anyone. It's not that verse. It's not... Um, and for the Christians that have participated in that historically about the slavery of just horrific um, within the South in particular, um, this verse is deeply painful uh, in those in, in my community, right, for those that this has been used to enslave. But it shouldn't have been used from that point of view anyway. They can't even read their text. Well, not just that. I mean, you're right. It, it, it justifies the concept of slavery. Right, right. That is not necessarily any of the details of who or not who and, and how. What, right. But this today is the week of our Torah portion, Shoftim in Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. which talks about uh, uh, the laws, which are equivalent to the section that begins in Exodus 20. And the first law in Exodus 20 is how to humanely treat indentured service right. slaves and then this it's repeated in in this uh torah portion in deuteronomy as well and the question is the people were just freed from egyptian slavery what the heck is the torah right. doing why, permitting it why at all is slavery permitted in any way anyway yeah. why probably one of the most disappointing things to me about the whole biblical experience was to get out of egypt having been slaves and then do it again right and then you have that in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah right. finally convinces the king and the nobles to get rid of their slaves, and then they can't deal with it economically. <clears throat> and a short mm-hmm. time later, they go out and capture all their slaves and bring them back into slavery, and then the country is destroyed. Yeah. And, 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 and knowing, you should learn from that. Right. And knowing <laughs> what we know today of how these verses were used to enslave people and to justify slavery and all of these structures— it's so angering because you just feel like you want to go to God and say, don't stick it in there. Like, just avoid it entirely So because we, we're dumb. Don't you know that part? Don't you remember the part where you said every inclination of our heart will be evil all the time? So help, help a brother out. Help a sister out. Don't stick these verses in that you know we're going to mess up. Yeah, well, that's one of the verses. So if our thoughts are evil all the time, then why try to be good? You know, you're right. bad. And so why just deal with it? Oh, I'll slave you. I'll eat you. Right. You know, I... I yeah. If you don't believe, as a matter of fact, um, just read the quote yesterday, so it's not stuck in my head who said it, but he said, if there is no God, then everything's permitted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's true. Right. But then, you know, people say, well, without divine law, then there is no law. And people, dog eat dog, well, the problem is there are too many divinities and too many religions, and therefore, right. I, which which system of ethics do I go by? But Well, and, and people would argue that there is evolutionary purpose behind ethical systems. And so then humans will find 
the ethical system because there's a benefit to it, right? Apart from whether or not there's a divine law. But um, both you and I would say uh, relationship with God helps. It relationship can. with it, God it, helps. You, people can use it for horrible means, right? But it can also be used for great good. It goes back into the mix of all of this um, this mess of an in, a good inclination or an evil inclination. And what do you want to love God with? And the answer is you should love God with all of it. And by the way, just in case anybody did not know this, it's not just Christians that were involved in the slave trade in the South. It was also Jews. Mm -hmm. And so Jews used these Bible verses in the same kind of way oh, that Christians did. So not every Jew. Right, of course. Not every, not Christian, every Christian. But yes, we were no less immune to the ill effects of these particular lousy verses. And so... Yeah. Look, when people want to find reasons to say that Torah and, and, and religion is not divine, there are plenty of places in the Bible that will show you that, you know, it was written for people. And um, I'm not going to go buy people right. necessarily, right. I, but, but even so. Yes. Yeah. And Maimonides, are one of our major philosophers from the 11th century in Spain, said that all these things about slavery and sacrifice were permitted by God because God did not want to make so abrupt a change right. that people would reject it. Right. right. And so it was a way of weaning people into a new system that would slowly be different. And when the temple was destroyed, Maimonides said, that should be enough. Right. No more sacrifice there, but it doesn't affect the slavery. Right. And in fact, in the New Testament, there's a conversation with Jesus about whether or not divorce is permitted. And Jesus says, Moses allowed you to divorce because your hearts were hard. Not because, you know, basically not because it was a good thing. It's permitted because you were stuck in this system because your heart was hard. But now that you sort of know better, you do better, to quote my Angela, right? Um, and... And I think in, in all of this, we would say that it very, very much matters who your rabbi is, who you're going to follow, whether or not your yoke is easy and your burden is light, or whether or not it's a heavy burden and it lays down heavy burdens on other people. And this is why we work so hard, both of you and I, to have these conversations and to better wrestle and understand this, this wonderful, beautiful story, because we want to become um, better followers of the God that we love. And better people all along. Yeah. Amen. Amen. To all